Uh, I was going to kind of use a, a, an office illustration where I was just going to go up here and just preach to you as if I was, you know, Pastor Matt, Asian Matt, and kind of like, you know, to see if you guys would notice. But, um, but no, no, I'm not Pastor Matt, obviously. I'm, uh, I'm David, and I, uh, David Choi, and I, I'm a, a PCA minister, uh, the same uh, as Pastor Matt. And uh, I used to have a church plant uh, that went about seven and a half years. And unfortunately, we, we folded, and I've been going through, you know, a lot of different mental things and emotions and ups and downs right now as I'm kind of going through a transition. Uh, but Pastor Matt asked me to come up here and, and give the word, and, and, I, and I, you know, said, yes, I'll do it, even though it has given me um, a ton of anxiety, I guess, in terms of preparing for this. Um, but hopefully uh, I can do a good enough job to get, enough, to get the, the word across. But I, I wanted to kind of take this as a moment of like, uh, you know, like the diaries of a pastor, I guess. Um, so I'm going to kind of walk you through what I've been going through a little bit and, and uh, through this, the word of, of God. But if you could turn your Bibles uh, with me to Mark chapter 14. Um, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And uh, then we'll, you know, get into the sermon. Mark chapter 14. Uh, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus was sitting at Bethany uh, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Christ. If you could join me in, in, in a short word of prayer, it would be great. Um, Father, we, we look to you now uh, to hear your word and, and to rely upon it. Um, convict us and, and mold us to, to, to live and, and, and die by the gospel and its grace. And I pray that you will uh, be with me as I um, proclaim this message and um, that uh, things will go smoothly, but more importantly, that, that I myself would... Uh, adhere to this message. I thank you, Lord, for all that you've given me and, and, and us uh, in this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, this, is a, this is quite a famous passage in Scripture. I think we all have heard it uh, or read through it, or maybe you've heard sermons through it uh, many times. I've preached through this passage uh, multiple times as well. But as I had been 
taking the time to prepare, you know, and Pastor Matt has given me about a month or so to do so, it has been a very difficult time for me to do, to, to, to prepare this. Um, this is such an extraordinary example of faith by a woman who had great courage and, and great boldness, even when the rest of the world called her foolish. And it actually has been killing me lately because it has made me feel so small in my own faith as I've been going through my own you know, mental health and, and, and issues of shame and guilt in my own life. And you see, uh, I, let me start off with a, with a little example. Um, you know, and, and this is kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting that we had a, a mass shooting again in a school just this week in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it's very sad. And and, and I think that when we think of faith, when I think of faith, uh, I think of stories like uh, Cassie Bernal. I, I don't know if that name actually rings a bell to you, but it's a name that's very close to us, both uh, geographically and spiritually. Uh, she's a modern-day martyr. And, 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 and what happened to Cassie Bernal, and you can read her mom's book uh, on it called she, Says, she Said Yes by Misty Bernal, but of all the, the tragic deaths that happened at Columbine High School on, on April 20th, 1999, none had touched the, the lives of, of people more than Cassie Bernal. Now, when one of these two killers, um, I don't know if you recall this or if you remember this, but one of those two killers put this, his uh, automatic rifle to her head and he asked her, do you believe in God? And it was described in that moment, there was a significant pause by Cassie when she was answering that question. And as that rifle was pointed directly at her head, the young woman pondered her response. And one witness uh, had said she paused like she, she didn't know what she was going to answer. She must have been scared, but her voice didn't sound shaky. It was actually strong. And the answer that she came out with was, yes, I do believe in God. Now, I'm sure some of you think about what you would do in, in a situation like that if it ever happened. Yeah, she was quite infamous for dying for Jesus. But what is perhaps well less known okay, is that it was only months prior to her death that she actually converted towards Christ. What's in interesting is that two years earlier, Cassie Bernal had been much like these two killers in Columbine High School uh, who later shot her. She too was caught up in, in gothic clothing and, and very dark music. She demonstrated wild rage and even flirted with suicide. She even you know, committed her soul to Satan in a very dark ritual. And, and she was found, her and her friend, plotting uh, the murder of their own teacher and wrote letters seriously discussing the idea of killing her own parents. Now, these aren't conjecture. These aren't just stories. These were actually letters found by her parents. And so her parents dramatically intervened by sending her to church youth groups. Did it go well at first? No. But then she made a Christian friend and was strikingly converted and transformed to Jesus at a retreat, and she came home and said to her mom, Mom, I've changed. I've been transformed. And it was only two years 
after making this profession of faith, living for Jesus, right, that this young woman was found willing to die for Christ. Her mother writes, and I love this, that she wrote what she wrote. She said, the real issue raised by Cassie's death is not what she said to her killers, but what it was that enabled her to face them as she did. And I love this part. Cassie didn't just die on April 20th, but died daily over the previous two years. Powerful stuff. I mean, that's, that's what we would think of faith in a nutshell, right? And, and there's this similar faith step when we look at this woman in Mark chapter 14 and her perfume. And let me tell you, I'll confess to you that for me, it's been killing me inside because I continue to deal with what I consider shame as a failed minister. I know I shouldn't think that way, but I can't help it at times. And, and I think of what Brene Brown says in her definitions of what guilt and shame are. Guilt is saying, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But shame is saying, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. And if we could take a closer look at this story, you know, I'm hoping that you and I will see the beauty of the gospel even in the midst of our faith failures and our shame. So if you could follow with me, I'm a three-point preacher, and so I have three points for you if you're taking notes. I don't know if you are or not. But the three points are this, that faith goes beyond practicality and it goes beyond calculation. Faith is focused on the object rather than the result. And then lastly, faith gives eternal meaning to our service. Now, let's go to that first point. Faith goes beyond practicality and calculation. Now, what do I mean by this? You know, maybe you're on the same boat as I am currently. I feel stuck. Why? It's because I've taken this realization in this small month, uh, four months of my break where I'm cal- I've been calculating my life. You know, I- I'm thinking about what I need to do in six months. And because I don't see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, I f- I'm frozen. I- I'm Elsa, right? And I- I'm singing that song in my head, you know, let it go, let it go, but I can't, right? Uh, recently, my, my son has been in the, uh, the, this golf program called Operation 36. I'm sorry I'm bringing up my son. I do this a lot, and I, I never tell him I'm going to do it. Um, but the, the premise of this program is, you know, you start out from 25 yards out, and, and you get four shots to make what we call a par. And you get nine holes to do that. So nine times four is 36. And if you get a 36 and under, then you get to move back to the 50 yards and out, right? You get the premise, right? So the first level, he passed 25 yards and out with ease. It was good. Great job. The second level, he got 50 yards and out, and it was a little tougher, but it took him about like two attempts, I believe, to get 36 and under. Right now, though, we are on 100 yards and out, and we've been so close, right? I say we as if I'm the one golfing for him, right? Um, you know, he's gotten 44, uh, 40, 39. He's like going down, right? Uh, 38, 38, 38, and then this last time we went, he shot a 44, back up. Now, this last time, you know, we were working on his mentals. We were talking, we were were hyping him up, right? We were saying, you know, all you have to do is just practice this swing over and over again. And he started off really well, three straight pars. And then the fourth hole, 
He makes it in two shots. We call that a, an eagle, right? We're on a roll. He's on a high. Everything is great. You know, we're piss, uh, not fist pounding. Sorry. We're fist pounding, okay? Um, we're fist pounding. Uh, and then I make the mistake of saying, hey, you've given yourself a cushion. Good job, right? You're going to make it. In the very next hole, water plus two. And you could just see and sense the emotions coming out. He's like, this is going to happen again. The next hole, uh, the sixth hole, bogey plus one. The seventh hole, another bogey plus one. And he's trying to keep it in. He's trying to keep it calm. The eighth hole, he pars. Yes, we got it going, right? Plus two overall if you're keeping score. And then that last hole, he starts to kind of show, I'm never going to win. I'm never going to get this. And he starts to you know, get all emotional. I said, no, no, Alistair, you're, you're fine. If you just hit a good shot, you can maybe make it in two, and you got, you, you get, you've given yourself a chance. He hits that ninth hole tee shot, and it just flies way off of the green. And you can imagine all of the emotions are flooding out. He shot a quadruple bogey. That's a plus four on that very last hole. He would he'd tell me, I did everything I was supposed to do. I kept all of my emotions in check. I was, you know, in the right frame of mind, and yet I still failed. His mentals crumbled right before, right before us. He became an emotional wreck. And this is what I said to my wife. I said to my wife, here he goes again. This is what he did. Then she gave me a look and said, you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. <laughs> Um, this is where I am at in my life right now. Right now, I'm trying to get 36 and under, and I've done everything that I thought was practical and calculated. You know, I, I graduated college in five years, right? I, that was practical, right? I, I, I finished seminary in three. Uh, I served right away. I, I, I found a beautiful wife, and I had my own, you know, beautiful children and my own family. And then God led me to start my own church uh, plant for seven and a half years. Everything was good. And then the ministry ended, and I got really burnt out. And I found myself in this depressive state, and I, I, and I, I felt like an absolute failure. And all the emotions came out. I couldn't move, and I'm stuck. You see, this woman shows that practicality and calculation was not something that she cared about when she approached Jesus. I want you to take a look at verse 3 with me once more. It says, she came with an alabaster flask of ointment of Piranard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, how costly was this perfume? Well, in that time period, a jar of perfume like this was valued at more than a man's uh, yearly wage, right? Uh, to put that into perspective, in 2022, the average Colorado uh, household income is about $75,000. Now, there's more. It's not just the monetary value, but presumably this is a, a family heirloom that's been passed from generation to generation. It was essentially this investment that her family had you know, accrued through, through, through time, and it was an investment for a rainy day. So not only was it so, worth so much monetarily, but it portrayed everything about her, everything about her family. And what this woman does is baffling. 
She comes up to Jesus and she breaks the entire jar of perfume. She doesn't come and open up the flask and get a handful of perfume. Now, that's what I would be doing, right? I'd, be, I'd open it up, I'd give it, you know, one handful and think, like, that's $1,000, that's $2,000. Do it seven, seven, about seven and a half times, a half handful at the end. That's about 10%, right? That's my offering. That's, that's still generous. She didn't ask how much Jesus wanted. She didn't even, you know, do the polite thing of, 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 you know, knocking on the door. She just barged into the house. She didn't sit down and calculate how this will affect her financially, monetarily, uh, in her shame, practically, none of that. She just broke the entire jar. And you will notice that this act is an act of no going back. You can't take back this act. It's the point of no return. But you see, that kind of thinking is almost the opposite of what the world thinks about, what I have found myself thinking about. Just imagine what the people around her were thinking. Look at verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? I mean, isn't that how you and I, at times, we, we, we think of our faith? We're so calculated. We spend time on church on a, on a precious Monday or Wednesday for a community group or Sunday for worship, and we start to think, well, is that really worth my time? You know, what's reading the Bible going to do and get me? What are these devotions going to do and get to get me when I have to study for exams or, or I have to finish this project for work and I've got to make my quota in order to make my career going, and I've and I got to feel complete. Look at what the people continue to say in verse 5. The jar of perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wage, 300 denarii, and the, woman, uh, and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Look, the world, these observers in this text are, are saying, you're an idiot for not calculating this act better. I mean, you could have used all that value and you turned it into something good, like giving it to the poor and hungry, what a waste. See, that's what the world, and right now for me, what I thought about this act of faith. Now, what we should notice as we carry on is that the person absent of rebuke, the one that doesn't rebuke this woman, is actually Jesus. Jesus should have said to this woman, go sell your possessions and give to the poor uh, like he did to the rich young ruler, but he doesn't. Why? Because Jesus understood that faith means going beyond practicality and calculation. It's an irreversible act. Well, let's go to the second point. Now, you'll find that these points are not you know, diametrically opposed to one another, but they actually compound to the point that you'll see in this text. Faith, the second point, is focused on the object rather than on the result. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you and I, we know the world, we always look for the result. We see that the, uh, the observers are, are baffled at what this woman does. How idiotic was this lady who just wasted her whole financial life? And, and for what result? The world says you get what you deserve. You you go to our schooling system, it says you study, you study good enough, you get good grades. You get good grades, you get into a good school. 
uh, you get into a good school, you'll find the perfect spouse, and then you'll, you'll get that 2.5 kids. I think it's still 2.5 kids. Uh, and, and then you'll, you'll get a nice house, and you're just building, and everything is good. We look for the results in our lives. And it doesn't matter if, if we're looking at the result and looking to get the result. It doesn't matter how we get there, right? Cheat the system as long as you get the result and don't get caught. You know, one of my pastor colleagues uh, was a tutor for, for many years, and he once told me that uh, students are really the biggest con artists in the world, right? Probably everyone is the biggest con artist. That confession of sin, I mean, that was beautiful. That's essentially what we are, right? We don't study. We don't learn. We just know how to get the answer. We know how to derive the, and, and get the grade. For some of us, um, it's, uh, in order to get the grade, we just flat out cheat, sit next to the smart person in class and just kind of look over. Although I don't know if you can do that now, this computer stuff, right? Um, you know, for others, we learn systems of how to derive the right answer. I don't know if you've ever done SAT prep class, but I, don't le- I didn't learn squat. I just learned, okay, what is the right answer here? How do I get that um, you know, the 1600 or whatever, right? We're all con artists. As long as we get the final and desired result we want, that's all that matters. And unfortunately, that mindset invades the church today. It doesn't matter how I get the numbers as long as I get these numbers. Look, man, I even went to community group, okay? Look at the result, right? I'm succeeding at my faith. I mean, that's harder than Jesus telling these these men to get off the boat and follow him, right? right? That is so hard to get people to go to community group, right? Uh, Lord, look, I've, I've, I've worked so hard at this church. This is, this is me. And, and I failed, and I'm completely burned out. And for what result? I want you to take a look back at this woman. Does she really care about the result? No. If she cared about the results, she would have cared about how she looked in front of all these people, how foolish she was, and how this was going to affect her financially. If she cared about the result, then rather than wasting the perfume on Jesus, she could have sold it and helped out the poor, a far greater result. You see, faith means that you focus on the object rather than the result, and her object was who? It was Christ even if it meant giving up all her money, and even if it meant looking like an absolute fool. So much of the story, it haunts me, because so much of the faith that she demonstrates in her life is the faith I can't find myself doing right now. I don't know how that is for you, but for me, this is what I'm struggling with. And I, have so, I end up having so much shame in it because I oftentimes forget this point, that faith is, uh, is focusing on the object rather than the result, right? Faith is focusing on Christ rather than what the outcome is going to be. You know, Keller gives, uh, Tim Keller gives a great illustration about being focused on the object rather than on the result when he talks about the Israelites and, and the Red Sea. And he mentions how as they walk through these two walls of water, there are probably two types of people. One who, uh, ones who were like gung-ho, you know, shaking their fists at the Egyptians and, 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 and looking at this amazement of water by the wind and how it separates. And, and they're just looking to the other side and saying, you know, God's got me. I got it. And I'm good. Okay? But Keller then also mentions how there were probably others 
who are also looking at the bodies of water and saying, that thing is going to crash down on me. I look at my past and look behind me, and these Egyptians are seething with blood. You know, like, you guys need to hurry up. I need to get out of here, right? And we're going to die. But the premise of Keller's point is that all of them, every single one of them, who put the blood, the lamb's blood on their doorposts, were saved. It's not about how much faith I have as much as where my faith is directed. So many of us, myself included, don't think about the small steps of faith. I'm so wrapped up in the stories of Cassie Bernal and, and what I've done, or church planting. It's, not a, it's a big faith step, right? And, and right now, I feel very stuck. Maybe, there's a huge, maybe for you, there's a huge transition in your life, and you're not sure what right faith step decision you need to do to make, right? Uh, you're stagnant, maybe, in your life, and you don't know how to get back. Maybe your marriage is unrepairable, and, and everyone is going to judge you, and you get this panic attack, and anxiety fills your veins, and you can't even move, and faith stories like this, they're too much for me to handle. You see, most times, as I've been learning, faith steps are small. I'm not saying for you, you got to go to your bank account Take all of it, you know, and, and give it to the poor or give it to grace and peace. Uh, maybe Matt would be happy about that. Um, but, you know, I too am learning that faith steps are daily. Uh, it helps us from being overwhelmed and inadequate. You know, I can't be the perfect father, I know that, or the a perfect husband or role model. I mess up daily. But maybe the faithful step is to put your phone down, take the family out, for some ice cream. I mean, maybe the faithful step is just to say hi to someone new at church rather than going to the same spot. Now, a community group talked about how we were like on the left side too much and we needed to be on the right side, right? Maybe the faithful step is to take a break. And, and, and rather than focusing so much on what we have to do, maybe the bigger and yet harder step of faith is to just focus on your Savior. And not the result. See, because this woman wanted to be closer to Jesus, she's demonstrating a life of faith. Thirdly, uh, faith gives eternal meaning to our service. Now, what does that mean? This is something that, you know, you and I might skip over in this text. But uh, well, I want you to take a closer look at this account. You can see that this woman does a brave and courageous thing. I mean, it is bold. Okay? And, and some people could have commended her for it, right? She could have said to herself, yeah, you know what? Why not? Jesus is being followed by thousands of people. All the big heads want to have him over for dinner. They want to talk to him. You know, here am I, uh, this lonely, uh, lowly, you know, woman, right? Um, you know, and, and money's not everything. Maybe if I just want to be a part of his life and, and he'll bless me. You know, maybe Jesus is, is, is Bieber and, and I'm a believer in Christ. Sorry, dad joke. Um, but then you put yourself in her shoes as she's maybe made this very emotional step and she hears Jesus' response. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, she's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for my burial. Now, you catch it, right? 
You think she anticipated that answer, that this jar of perfume, her year's wage and family heirloom was going to be used for someone who's going to die? She made a big mistake, right? Sometimes faith, makes, uh, faith steps that we make make absolutely no sense at all. You see, faith goes beyond our practicality and calculation. Faith is focused on the object, and it goes beyond our expectations even. Faith gives us eternal meaning to our service. It's not about now. It's about eternity. And the stuff that we will do will matter in eternity, even if it looks like it's worthless now. There's a, um, a powerful medical doctor, missionary. Uh, her name was Helen Roosevelt. And she was a, a missionary to Congo in 1960, around that time. And what's so famous about this woman, this Christian woman missionary, was that in Congo, the people that she helped, the very people that she helped build up you know, hospitals and, and raise up uh, you know, medical facilities and, and to also be part of the, the preaching of the gospel, well, they had a Congolese civil war. And they captured her and put her on trial in 1964. And she was taken prisoner for about five months. And in prison, she was beaten, and she was raped multiple times. And you would think that she'd give up after going through something like that. You'd think that she would have said, it wasn't worth my body, it's not worth all those emotional scars, and, and the mental pictures that I have of being beaten and, and raped, and that, that's not worth it. And yet in 1966, two years later, when she had another opportunity to go back to Congo after the Civil War, she did. You think that if someone were to ask her in retrospect if she would do it all over again, would it be worth it to her? And I believe she would have said absolutely yes. Why? Because even if my body is destroyed and defiled, even in, in that moment, I don't know what's going on and why this is happening. It was worth it because souls had the chance to profess their eternal love for Christ. You see, to Helen Roosevelt, her body being sacrificed for the sake of Jesus' gospel to be reached to those unreached was absolutely worth it to her. Now, that's a really extreme example, and it scares the living faith out of me at times. Can I find myself doing that? And there are times in our lives when we try to serve Jesus and it's just not going to make sense. Some of you get upset. I myself, that my service, my sacrifice is showing a result that I don't understand. And I think, and I'll say it out loud, this is an absolute waste. But I want you to look at verse 9 in Jesus' response. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world and what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Even if you think it is an absolute waste, Christ gives it eternal meaning. So knowing that, how can we consider it a waste to serve Jesus? How can we call it a waste when Christ is the one who gives eternal meaning to our service? Not taking shortcuts at work or at school, having opportunity to talk gospel with an unbeliever, taking five minutes out of your time to talk to a stranger is not a waste eternally. Let me um, 
conclude with verse 10 and 11. It says, Then Jesus Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now this verse seems a little bit out of place, if you will, right? Uh, here we're talking about this woman who, who does a, a bold and courageous act, and then we talk immediately about Judas's betrayal. But there's a reason. Then Mark puts it right here and right now. Mark is directly contrasting Judas's worldly thinking. He's practical. He's, he's looking for the result. He meets his own expectations to the one of the woman's dedication. See, Jesus fails to see the worthiness of Jesus, and the danger is that you can use Jesus like Judas did rather than to seek Jesus for our gain. Now, that's not all. I could tell you that as a Christian, this ought to be your perspective. This is your act of sacrifice, right? But if I left you to that alone, you, like me, uh, would be in utter shame. If this woman's faith and her actions was the object of ours, it would make Christianity into this works-based religion, and we would absolutely fail. But this woman shows that faith doesn't mean anything unless Christ is the one who first gave his life sacrificially for the sake of us. You see, when Jesus saw this woman, he saw that this woman was being identified with him. And you'll see that Christ is the one who demonstrates the utmost living sacrifice. Look at my three points again. Was it not Jesus who exceeded all practicality and all calculation when he went to the cross? Christ didn't sit down and calculate the cost of the cross and say that this is going to be a waste. And so, no, I'm not going there. Christ knew that his service and, uh, was, to the, was to go to the point of no return. It was an irreversible service, and yet he willingly took it. Was it not Jesus who focused on the object rather than on the result? You see, if Jesus looked at the result, it was his death that should have stopped him from going on. But what was the object of his devotion to us? It was the will of his Father and the salvation of you and me. And was it not Christ whose action brought eternal meaning to his service? You see, when Jesus stood on the cross and said, it is finished, was it worth it? When Jesus looked at you and he knew he would die for you, and as we read that confession of sin, we know who we are. We're not, nothing, we're not anything special. Were we worth it? Absolutely we were worth it. Jesus lived the perfect life of sacrifice. He stretched out his arms on the cross and he died for our sins because you were worth it. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, this woman patterned her body sacrifice after him. And as I, I tell you, as a Christian, you should also love to sacrifice and to have faith like this because you are anchored to what he has done and his body and he is worth every second of sacrifice something that I continue to work through each and every day. What I'm continuing to learn and experience, because, you know, I've already learned this in my years as a Christian and as a minister, but I'm experiencing it today, is that faith is not the ability to take the right step. Faith is knowing that Jesus is near 
even when I make the wrong step. 1 John 4.19 states, we love because Jesus first loved us. And that's got to be our focus. It's not how much more do we have to love him or to show him our love. It's reflecting on how much Jesus already demonstrated his love to us. And in turn, these small faithful steps will matter so much in eternity. And I have to learn how to walk those small faithful steps each and every day. Don't get lost in the Everest of my life. Let's all lean on Jesus day by day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to, to give your word. And um, as we move toward this body and blood, this sacrifice, we're not coming up to this table because we're demonstrating and showing you how dedicated we are to you. No, we're coming to this table because you are showing us how dedicated and perseverant you are to us. That's what this body and blood stands for. It's about what you have done. And so I pray that as we come to the table, may we eat of your body and and drink of your blood and remember that we are so much about relying on what you've done and how that then affects us in our everyday lives. Thank you, Lord, for this time of, of giving your word and I pray that you would guide us here as we now take this small step of faith in believing what you've done for us on the cross. I thank you, Lord, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.